Welcome to the Crackpots podcast. I'm Pastor Rebecca. And I'm Pastor Chad. And so our text for this weekend was from the first and second chapters of Exodus, uh, the, the birth of Moses and his, I guess, his, the, the saving of Moses. His water adventure. <laughs> Moses on the Nile. <laughs> yeah. I, we, I think we got a movie idea right out of the gate. <laughs> well, see, I, I, um, of course, everybody knows I grew up in Nebraska and in Kansas City. They had a uh, um, an amusement park called Worlds of Fun, and they had a ride called Fury of the Nile. So, okay, Moses of the Nile, and you were on these there little bumper car kind of things, and you. Psh. I was thinking more flume ride. You're in that little like log flit, and you ah. go and then. Psh. Yeah. This was more like a round, big bumper yeah, car gotcha. kind of thing. But yeah, okay. yeah. Fury of the Nile, Moses on the Nile, um, in his little basket. So, so the Fury in the Nile, it, it, for this story, we'll just go with the Nebraska, the strange Nebraska practices. <laughs> Technically, it's not Nebraska, it was Kansas City. Okay, whatever. Um, strange Midwest. So, so the Fury <laughs> of the Nile was uh, Pharaoh uh, making a decree that all all Hebrew boys um, be chucked in the river um, and not for baptism and not for a nice little swim. Yeah, that's some fury. Yep, throw them into the Nile, but let every girl live. Yay. Yeah, so, you know, I didn't didn't mention this this weekend. It just didn't make it into the sermon, but one of my notes that I wrote was, is this the only time in Scripture where women are put before men? Uh, Yeah, well, we weren't seen (laughs) as a threat. I know, um, but 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 it's it's, like, it's women who undo Pharaoh's grand plans. Yeah, so like I can't go there. I can't go there. Okay, I well, don't know where you were gonna go. So but. I mean, I mean, the reality is like this whole idea that um, uh, women are demure and subservient and lack the ability to. Um, make things happen. Let's just say that because uh-huh. that's, that's a more vague That we're term. not tough. Right. Um, and then you have, you know, stories like this where our series is unraveling, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and this week the theme was when our dreams for our children unravel. Pharaoh didn't imagine that his daughter was going to be the one to unravel, well, like him. Yeah. <laughs> well, and she's not the only one that unravels his plans. She's not the only woman who, who does it. The, uh, the midwives actually unravel it as well. Now, that isn't part of our reading, right. um, but part of that story is the, the midwives. We're not real sure because of how the Hebrew structured, whether the midwives are actually Egyptian women who were midwives to the Hebrew women or whether they were Hebrew women. But Pua and Shipra, I think, are the two, the, the two midwives who basically lie to Pharaoh and say, these Hebrew women just keep having these babies so fast we can't keep up with grabbing them and throwing them in the Nile. Yep. And so they're kind of part of this, I guess you'd call it conspiracy, to make sure that some of the male children survive. And this, this sort of unraveling of, of his grand plan by these two women and then a continuation of, of course, then um, you've, you've got, um, I believe her, her name is Yoshebel, is the mother of Moses. I think that's her name. I, that's Something along those lines. Yeah. Um, so the J, and then, of course, in Hebrew, yeah, is the, is the yeah pronunciation. But anyway. In the text this week, it's his mother. Yeah, yeah. No she gets mentioned, like, much later on, yeah. I think, by name. But anyway, the point being... Um, the mother kind of un- undoes that that plan, and then Pharaoh's daughter, you know, a little closer to home, <laughs> completely undoes it. But it's just kind of interesting that there are all these women along the way who are the ones that are undoing what this powerful king, Pharaoh, is trying to accomplish. So it's yet, for me, it's another reminder of the stupidity and ignorance that women shouldn't be pastors. I, I mean, in some denominations, that's a thing. Well, if you're a woman, you can't lead can't a Bible a study or be a pastor or whatever. Well, it's because we're subversive um, like this. Right. And then you, re- and then you read <laughs> texts like this, 
and you read the Gospels and the role that, you know, Mary Magdalene and, and Mary, and, and the role that women play in, in all of, you know, throughout Scripture. It's not, just a, it's not just this text where it's like, wow, like these women got things done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who went to the tomb and, re- oh. Well, where, where would the, yeah. uh, you know, Joshua's spies have been without Rahab? Yeah, so I I mean, you know, this is, you know, another instance where it kind of throws in the face that idea that, you know, women can't be pastors, can't or shouldn't be pastors. Let's not even talk about Deborah. Yeah. Because men couldn't get the job done, so (laughs) Deborah's like, fine, give me control, I'll do it. Yeah, I think, you know, I I think there's some, there's something to be said. You know, how much does testosterone get in the way? (laughs) (laughs) I mean. The male ego. Yeah, I I mean, it. Let's be honest. Like I think there's a part of it, you know. Pharaoh makes this decree, and and damn it, you're gonna follow it. And we don't have a report. And maybe there were men who didn't, right? Like we don't know. Right. I mean, we it's would again, assume it's... that's the case. But you know, hey, we have this piece of scripture, and by the account of scripture, the men are largely following along, and the men in Pharaoh's court are following along. And the women are undoing it. The women are undoing it, and his daughter (laughs) is part of it. Yep. Yeah. So interesting. Just an interesting little little tidbit with you know scripture and the things we choose to ignore in scripture and the things we choose to kind of make make decrees about, so to speak. Um, So so what was your biggest challenge with writing a sermon for this week? Way too personal. Ooh. Like this was a really personal. This was a really this was hard. This was a hard week. Um, so I'm, I'm a parent. I have a son who's 22. I have a daughter who's eight, and one that will be seven in like on Sunday. So seven, eight, and 22. And I've come to the conclusion after the last few years, um, year year to two years, that it's much easier parenting your kids before they're adults than when they're young adults. Um, it's, it, I mean, for a lot of reasons. Um, there's, they're off on their own. You know, they can get into much, they can get into more trouble um, when they're on their own, off at college. You know, those, it's harder to keep tab. It's not that. You have less control. You have less control. And, and, I, and I say that with a caveat that I, Christine and I are blessed um, that that Camden is not one of those kids that we need to control, and he's know, not getting into drugs. Is he's not, not getting yeah. into trouble. Not getting into trouble, and we are so blessed um, that that's the case. So you know, I just want I want to state that like unequivocally, like he's a great kid, but he's 22, and when you're 22, you don't always make the best choices. I didn't make the best choices. You know, nobody makes. Let's be honest. There are a whole lot of people that at 22 make really good, solid life choices, like across the board. No. And, and you know, Camden has made some choices that, you know, eh, maybe not bad, but man, I, I, wish, I wish you would have done this differently, or I wish you would have asked us and we could have maybe, maybe guided you in a different direction, those sorts of things. Right. Um, so a little story that might make you feel a little bit better about choices 22-year-olds make. Um, when now, unlike you, you know, you're talking about how your parents had this, your your dad at least kind of had this vision of you being a, a baseball player yeah. or whatever. I don't know that my parents ever had any vision of what I was going to be. Um, they never pushed me in a particular direction. Um, I just kind of wandered around aimlessly trying to figure out what to do with my life. Um, and you know, eventually, my parents had to sit me down and have that conversation of you have to quit changing majors and graduate <laughs> because. We, we are not going to pay for you to be in school forever. Oh, but I, I want to be in school forever. So by the time I graduated, it was, oddly enough, despite changing my major like three times, um, I still wound up getting out in four and a half years. Wow. I did a lot of summer school. And uh, four and a half years, so I graduated in December, and my birthday's in January. So I was 23, basically, yep. about the time I, I got out of college. So year older doesn't really matter. And what I decided I wanted to do with a journalism major was I did not want to be in the news anymore. Yep. Um, I had kind of tried that throughout 
college times and I decided I just, I'm not gonna go into the reasons why. Um, I just did not want to be part of, of that. I decided I would much rather be in Hollywood where I'm, you know, I know these stories are, are fiction. I know these stories are things we're embellishing and it's, yeah. it's I just want to be a good storyteller. So I wanted to go be a writer for Hollywood. And so I decided the only way you're going to do that is not sitting in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, you're going to have to do that yep. in Hollywood somewhere. Yep. And so I went to my parents and said, this is what I wanted to do. And my father offered me $1,000 not to do it. <laughs> wow. I did not go the bribe. I did not uh, yeah, try the nope, bribe. Nope, they tried to bribe me not to do it. Um, and then my parents took off and went to Australia for a month. And when they came back, I said, I um, have made all the arrangements and I am moving to uh, L.A. in three days. Ooh, three days. Ooh. So three days after they're jet lagged and whatever, um, their, their 23-year-old daughter decides that she is moving halfway across the country. And this did Yikes. not, yeah, this, this did not um, go over well with either of my parents. Um, it did not, my, my mother was beside herself and was convinced that bad things were going to happen to me um, if I lived in the big bad city of Los Angeles. Um, I had no job. I had nothing lined up. So I had a little, little tiny U-Haul trailer um, on the back of my car with all of my possessions and away I went over the mountains and went to California, found a place to live sight unseen and uh, began doing temp work. What was your parents' alcohol consumption during that time period? I am fairly certain it was very, very, very high. Um, Mine would have been as well. In fact, my father refused to speak to me for three months. Ooh. And after about three months, my mom was like, I am coming out to see you because I need to see that you're not living in, you know, squalor, right. that you're not yeah. living on the streets, that you're not turning tricks and doing all that kind of stuff. Because <laughs> yes. that was pretty much the assumption of what was going to happen to me. Um, She's going to have to strip away the Hollywood. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. that's the, that's the, which... You yep. know, part of me was kind of like, really? That's what you think of me and my abilities? And, and that's the kind of faith you have in me? But that's another story. Uh, <laughs> that's a different text. That's a different, that's a different text. My parents were also convinced I'd done drugs. And, and my best friend was like, you don't know your daughter, do you? <laughs> it's just like, no. I can tell you exactly why she doesn't. But anyway, that's a whole other story, too. Anyway. Different text. Different text. So... Here, here I am, three months in, and I've been, um, I, my first couple of months I had been working at a temp agency, just answering phones. It was not even through the temp agency, like actually literally at the temp agency. The temp agency hired me yeah. within the temp, temp agency um, for, I think at the time, out in California, it was like seven bucks an hour or something. So it was really not enough to live on, but my rent was a little tiny studio apartment, $500 a month. Um, and I was, I was somehow making, a sur I was surviving. Um, mom came to visit, bought me groceries because that's what moms do. Um, doesn't want me starving. And, and thank God because yeah. I needed groceries because I yep. had this little tiny apartment and seven bucks an hour, blah, blah, blah. Yep. 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 So, so mom came, bought me groceries and whatnot. And as we were driving one day down, uh, the, the freeway, and this is in Burbank, California, which is where I was living as we drove by the Disney Animation Studios. And I said, Mom, one of these days, I am going to live there. Or not live there, but I'm going to work there. Yep. I'm going to work there. And she just kind of was like, uh-huh, okay. And so then I started actually working for Disney Interactive, where I got to earn $10 an hour. Okay. And I worked overtime, and I worked double time, and I did that for 11 months. And then I was working for an organization called Women in Film. And then eventually, guess where I was working? I don't know. I was working at that animation building. In animation, doing story development, which was my kind of dream yeah. thing that I had set out yeah. there to do. That was what I wanted to do. And boom. Within a year and a half, yep. 
literally of um, my moving out there. I had my dream job, blah, 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 blah. Now, I recognize that's not how everybody's works, but I'm just saying yeah, no. my parents would have told you my decision was disastrous yep. at the time I was making it. Yep. It was a horrible decision. I should not have made that decision. Um, very, very bad idea. My mother, five years later, came to me and said, I have to admit, this was probably the best thing you ever did. I think, so there, there's, with parenthood comes this inherent fear that your kids are, are not fail in a sense of not succeeding, but fail in a sense of struggle and not be able to make ends meet and be miserable and all those things. And I think what we often forget um, is we've spent, we being parents, have spent 20 years, depending on the age, however many years, raising, teaching, forming, and molding our kids, right? So, but, but we're slow to actually have faith that any of it worked, <laughs> right? Right. So, like, your parents raised you and for whatever reason got you to the point where, like, uh, and, and I think, I think we, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a choice here that we have as, as, as youth and young people. We can either look at our, our families, our, our parents, and go, I want to in some way emulate that. Or I don't want to emulate that, depending. Um, and I think for me it was both. There were some things for my parents that I like, okay, so my parents were divorced. They argued a lot. Um, after they were divorced, they argued a lot. I'm like, I, if I'm ever divorced, God forbid, I do not want to do that. And, you know, unfortunately, I ended up divorced. And, but, I, but I stuck to that. I'm like, listen, I am not, like, I am not fighting. And sometimes, you know, there were things that I wish I would have handled a little differently, but I did not handle them by fighting about things that ultimately were, you know, maybe not, maybe not all that important and, and you know, um, we're not all that important, but I think you know. Some as a parent, you kind of have to have faith that you've that you've raised your ch your children, your your kids well enough, that and given them the skills to to survive and and do what it takes. Now, I think that's one of the tricks in the reading in this reading. At three months old, Moses's mother is basically throwing him in a basket and praying for the best. Right. Yeah. Th th this and isn't exactly decisions Moses is making yeah, in any think, way, shape, or form. I don't think you form. can download enough in three months as a parent um, <laughs> with a three-month-old to make them be. Oh, well, I'm going to put him in a basket. He's going to hunk up in the reeds, and then you know the baby's going to be good to go. He's going to yo yo Pharaoh's daughter, and you know finds her, and and everything happens. Like, I don't think that happens at three months old. Um, but I you know I think I think as parents you know maybe we forget. This is another you know good reminder for me. That we raised you for however many years, you know, if, if we did the job we're supposed to do, then you know what? You'll be okay. But nonetheless, like, we have this fear. So, you know, I, I, I've not gone three months without talking to my son. Um, but it had been a few weeks. Um, and I'm st I can be stubborn and boneheaded. Um, consider that a confession. Um, and I'm like, you know what? We're in this situation. We were in this situation before. We're here again, and I was frustrated by it. And then I, I hadn't picked up the phone. I'm like, man, that's just wrong. So part of my, you know, my focus this week was really, you know, let's let's analyze our relationships and make sure that what we're communicating, both verbally and non-verbally, actually lines up with with what we want, um, and and the, that relationship piece. And it was really, this, this text was really interesting um, because it, so one of the things I struggled with and I actually wrote it in my sermon, I'm like, well, that's not actually, I don't know that I can faithfully say that. You know, so if you just trust in God, everything will be okay. Well, I, you know, I, I think that's true-ish. <laughs> But like, okay, so so if you are having fertility issues, or you lose a baby, or you know something along those lines happens, to say that for a text like this really rings hollow. Well, it rings hollow in a lot of ways. Um, then I don't want to 
jump the gun and get into next week's text on Job. But, you know, that whole notion that, you know, oh, everything's going to be just fine and, and whatever. And sometimes it's not. You know, yeah. uh, and the reality is sometimes it's not okay. Yeah. And I think we, we have to be able to say that as well and say sometimes yep. situations are such that it's just, it's not going to be okay. Yeah. Um, you know, ultimately the promises we have are in the grand scheme of things that the, you know, the culmination of time, et cetera, yes. <laughs> but in, you know, our individual lives right here, right now, Sometimes it's not okay, and, yeah. and sometimes things aren't okay. And, and you know, I, I unfortunately have had too many times where I've had to w watch people hit rock bottom, and unfortunately rock bottom sometimes is death. Yeah. And, and, and rock bottom, it's not called down pillow bottom. Yeah. It's hard. Like, yep. it's, it's, a, it's a collision. It's not a soft landing. No. And and that's the, the hard thing for me a lot of times to watch when you're like, I realize this person has to hit that that point. And whether they survive it or not is not always yeah. a guarantee. And it's it's rough. So it's kind of like throwing Moses into the river and just kind of being like, you right. know, there's a fifty fifty shot here. Yeah. And so I so I mean I struggle with that a lot this week. Like, I, I started writing my sermon. I got to this point. I'm like, okay, now I want to, I, I need, to, I'm like, I can't. Like, I can't say that. It's not, it's, it's not true. And you don't believe it. Right. And not part to, of it, too. And not, and not yeah. to say that, not to say that, you know, you shouldn't have faith and not to say we can't trust in God. You know, we had somebody email us this week um, and asked if we believe in... Uh, man-made vaccines. Man-made vaccines or trust in the power of God. Healing power. Healing power of God. And, and our answer was yes. Yeah. Yeah. Both. Both. Um, so I, I just, yeah. I, I, so I really struggled this week with that, with that idea of can I, can I faithfully say that, you know, she just trusted God or trusted, yeah, just trusted God and put Moses in the basket and prayed and look, everything turned out great. I, I I couldn't get there. I couldn't get there. Um, I try really hard. You know, if if I if I can't sell it to myself, it doesn't make the cut into the sermon. Like, I I I couldn't sell it. So I, like I couldn't sell it to myself. Like, oh, you know, it's it again. It sounds kind of hollow yeah. for me to say that. Now again, not to say that we shouldn't trust in God, and not to say that God doesn't. You know, God has a plan and blah, 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 all those things. Absolutely. However, I think we have to be careful how we phrase those things and what that looks like. And, and what we mean by God's plan. And what we, exactly, what we mean by God's plan. Because God's plan isn't always um, what's best for me. Well, and it's not, not, always, only, and not only that. It's not always like an uh, actual like script. Yeah. There's not a script that God has written that says blah, blah, blah. Well, I still remember a, a funeral I did for a teenager one time who had died of cancer. And I knew that um, a funeral for another teenager I had gone to just probably a few weeks earlier. I did was not doing the funeral, but somebody else yeah. with a different church, um, different theologies going on. And basically they were they were like, well, you know, God, God has this plan and God, God knew he was taking this person and blah, 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 and that's all just part of the plan, et cetera, et cetera. And <laughs> the other pastor I worked with and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, this guy just basically say God killed that kid? <laughs> I mean, you know, and it was, it, that didn't really ring. And for, for especially parents who are in pain and in, and in suffering, they can go one of two ways with that. They can either cling to that and say, yes, okay, God's got a plan, and, and this is, there's some purpose to it that I just don't understand, and they go on their, their way. Um, more often than not, what I have seen is when a parent has, is being told, well, well, it's all part of God's plan, is to go, well, that's a really, really bad plan. Um, yeah. and, and not... It provides zero comfort because it does not diminish the fact that their child is gone when they should not be. So yeah. here I am, kind of a couple of weeks after that, having to give a sermon for another teenager who has died. 
And I addressed the plan thing. And I said, and I know many of you probably are thinking this is all part of God's plan, blah, blah, blah. I'll tell you right now what God's plan is, is to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus Christ. Period. That's the plan. The plan is not, I'm going to kill this person, I'm going to kill that person at this point in time, blah, 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 and blah. That, and, and that those teenagers dying does nothing to reconcile the world no. to Jesus. No, it, it, it does not further that agenda in any no. way, shape, or form. Um, and God's so, plan isn't death. Like, if, if, if it involves death, it ain't God's plan. It's a, blank, yeah. it's a blanket statement. Yeah. I get uh, that. And yeah. it's an overgeneralization. Yeah. But I was, was going like, to say, I can maybe argue a little bit with that, but it, it, the, the kind of senseless death sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of eventually we all die, yeah, that kind of was... <laughs> kind of a thing. Kind, kind of a thing. <laughs> it was kind of built into the system. Yeah. That's um, but that's not the end. That That's the promise that we have is that we all recognize the, the finality and the reality of our own lives, that we are all going to die at some point in time. Um, and, you know, hopefully it's at the, you know, full life, you're ready for it, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, 80 time, years old, 90 years old, in good health, just don't wake up one day. Yeah. Like that's sort of... That's what everybody kind of hopes for, yeah. I think, yeah. eventually. But, um, you know, in the reality that, that we, we will one day die. We, none of us gets out of this life alive. It's the, that is reality. Yep. And so that's, that's kind of why I have the caveat of, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. But some kind of willful, you know, right. killing of, of somebody before their time, um, whether it's humans doing it, whether it's a disease doing it, you know, whatever. Um, you know, it's, Coronavirus it's, it's all... Coronavirus is God's will... Because we have strayed from God sort of thing. Yeah, that's a little weak. Yeah. On the theology. Yeah. <laughs> it's out yeah. there. I know it is. It's I know out there. It is. Um, I, it's kind of one of those things, though. I think the things they think we've strayed on maybe aren't where we've strayed. But that's a whole other issue. Um, the, but, you know, but, but. That reality of where, where is God's plan? Where, where does this fit into God's plan? Um, and we kind of had this sermon a couple of weeks ago that had to do about unraveling God's plans and how we kind of mess things up yeah. quite a bit where, yeah. where God says, I'm going to do this. And, and it's this, it's a, the Hebrew Bible in particular is very intermingled with both the sovereignty of God as well as human agency that they somehow work together. And there's this, this meshing together of God's will will get done. He uses us to do it, and yet at the same time, in the process of using us, we tend to do things that sort of mess it up. Look at Rebecca, for instance, in the Jacob-Esau story. Uh, God made a promise, and Rebecca kind of is like, okay, well, I'm going to make sure this promise happens. And it's like, well, maybe that wasn't quite what God had in mind. I mean, it winds up happening, but it also results in a lot of broken relationships, which I don't think the broken relationships were what God was planning on necessarily, so to speak. Right. So there's this, there's this tough tension between both you know, sort of, I guess you might call it our, our, our fate, our, our predestination, whatever you want to call it. Yep, that um, scripted plan that God has. Yes, and human will and agency that gets in the middle of that. And the, the Hebrew Bible is not strict one way or the other. Both are at play. So, yeah, right. So, so here's a real-world scenario, not like personal, but so uh, Bob random name just pulled out of thin air. Bob had to become an alcoholic because it was part of God's script so that Bob would learn the power or the destructiveness of being an alcoholic so Bob could then become sober and preach to people to be sober. Like that's... 
I, I don't. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the, okay. So this the Joseph story. Um, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, um, there's two ways to interpret that statement. One is that um, God had planned all along Joseph was going to be thrown in the prison um, and sold by his brothers, and he was going to go through that fun little <laughs> hell, so to speak, for however many years in order right. to wind up in Pharaoh's court so that he could then say blah, blah, blah. Or, and this is usually the interpretation I take, is no, um, his, his brothers sell him into slavery because they're just doing bad things. And God takes a look at what's going on and says, okay, how can I take what they're messing with and yep. turn it into something good? So I don't think that my getting married and divorced, for instance, was really God's will so that I could then have a better understanding of, how to, um, of, of other women going through um, emotionally abusive type relationships that started for me at least for a short period of time, kind of a, um, a ministry to... Uh, women for, for those kinds of, of issues. But God... God took what was there yep. and said, okay, how can we take this and turn it into something that at least is, again, a furthering of helping other people, which is a furthering of the kingdom of God? How can I take this tragedy and make this tragedy something that actually moves towards what my actual plan is, what my, my end goal is in yeah. terms of bringing the kingdom of God into the world. Yeah, and I think, I think that, for me, that's, that's a hallmark, that, that's a common theme of, of Scripture um, and how God, how God acts in the world, you know, taking the messes that we make and figuring out how to make it all fit together to bring the kingdom. So, for instance, um, remember Cause Chuck, when... Because chucking babies in the water ain't... No. So, so re not. remember the, um, the first earthquake that hit Haiti back in, was it Ooh. 2012? I don't remember the year. Thereabouts. It was, yeah. It was like January 12, 2012, somewhere around there. I remember because it was either the day before or after my birthday. Um, and... I had a friend who was flying uh, from Fort Lauderdale to Haiti, supplies and people and stuff like that, and just the devastation that was there. And he came back to me, and he's kind of an agnostic atheist type person, came back to me and just said, I, I, I get you believe in God, but how can you believe in God when God allows this? Yep. God did this because it was an earthquake. And I said, well, you have to also realize that the Dominican Republic had kind of the same earthquake, did not suffer the devastation because they took better care of their people. Yep. So the devastation in Haiti is in part human intervention of not caring for the people of Haiti, of, of they don't do the things that they needed to do to care for their people. So when an earthquake hits, it's that yeah. horrifying. Catastrophic. Yeah, it's catastrophic. Whereas um, I think it was even like just a month or two later, there was a similar one in Chile that was like an eight point something or, you know, something along those lines. And again, not the devastation. Why not? Well, because they had retrofitted all their buildings and blah, blah, blah. And it was, again, that human agency of caring for one another actually mitigates death. So we had that. And tragedy. We had those conversations with Hurricane Dorian. Like, we were in the crosshairs. Like, Jim Cantori was hanging out, not at the church here, but mm -hmm. hanging out in town because we were going get, to get hit by Dorian. And then... It stopped, set over the Bahamas, and devastated. It was a category the, five. De degree. Devastated the Bahamas, um, and generally speaking, t eventually turned north, and we really didn't get, we got, we really didn't get anything. We didn't get any. I don't think we even really got much in the way of rain. Um, it just was. And I, I, we, well, I know I did. I know, I know you, we, we struggled with, you know, what that means, you know. So it's like, oh. Thank God, you know, we said we prayed and, and God spared us. And it's like, uh, 
but they didn't spare the Bahamas. They didn't spare the Bahamas. And I know from spending some time in the Bahamas post Hurricane Dorian, yep. you know, there was a lot of chatter over there that um, Dorian was punishment for the Bohemian people turning away from God, which, again, there's al- anytime there's a devastating act, there's a theological sect that will, that will use it to, to try and say, well, this happened, God caused this to happen, because this is one of the plagues, this is the new version of the plagues, and God caused this to happen well, because we've turned our back on God. It's like Katrina in New Orleans when they were Katrina's all like, oh, you know, it's because New Orleans is this sinful city, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, but Katrina didn't really hurt Bourbon Street. <laughs> it didn't hurt all the places that were actually what you would consider the, the, the debauchery of New Orleans. Yeah, they rebuilt that pretty quick. It, well, and it really was never destroyed. Yeah. That was the thing, is that part of New Orleans really didn't get hit. It was that lower Ninth Ward yeah. where all the poorer people lived yeah. that got inundated. And you're like, okay, so God went after the poor people and not the debauchery? Because that doesn't fit with Scripture. No, that makes no sense. Right. So that you, you can't really, you, you, you know, trying to assign some kind of natural disaster to God's judgment on something just doesn't usually work very well. <laughs> it just Why can't the Bible just be happy? Like, why does the Bible have to go into chucking babies in the river and, you know, wars and violence? and? Well, you know the thing that I used to always tell our former um, youth director when she would be reading a Bible story that she would have to do for the kids. I was picturing the look on her, the look of like shock, disgust, whatever it was on her face. Her face. Yeah. And I would walk in and, and she would say something and I would look at her and, and I would just smile and go, how many times do I have to tell you the Bible is not meant for children? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, this is not meant for kids. It is, it is a, a the, the, the biblical stories are rough stories. Which, horrible stories. Which I think it's part of the reason why, like those Sunday school lessons that we take that are not necessarily sanitized, solid theologically, that's why. Because yep. we have to sanitize them in order to and, and, and we're, to and we're not saying that kids don't belong in church and we're not saying that we shouldn't teach kids blah blah, we're not saying that. But like yeah, try doing a text like this um so if you were born, if you were born when Pharaoh was king, if you were a boy, you would have had to be thrown in the river and dead. Ooh, <laughs> gee. But you know, mommy, s- look, mommy, look what I colored in Sunday school. This is me drowning in the Nile. Yeah. Well, I mean, ooh, that'll get. We'll be popular with the parents then. But and the reality is, though, is we still teach those stories, and somehow it doesn't sink in with our kids that this is probably a really traumatizing story. Um, they probably have the cute little basket in the reeds that they're coloring in. I don't think it's. I don't think it sinks in with with adults. An, with adults, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. That and that's no. not that's not a knock on y'all if you're listening, but you know because it's all about. So often it's all about spin, right? Yeah. So if we you look for the silver lining in the story, and that's what you grab hold of, and that's the part that you you move yeah. forward with, as yeah. opposed to all the horrible, awful things that are going on underneath. Yeah, and, and I, think that's, I, I think that's one of the challenges. I think it's sometimes why you know, we do get some complaints from the time on, on the preaching. And I think part of it is that sometimes, like, what's the say about pol- you can't polish a turd? It's still a turd. <laughs> um, like, some of these texts, you can try and polish them as much as you want, but... Yeah, they, they're hard. At the same time, and the truths are difficult. Part of what made scripture true for me when I was in my process of trying to figure out what I believed, et cetera, as a young adult, part of what convinced me of the truth of scripture was how brutally honest and messy it was. Because to me, that that spoke to me and said, these people are not even close to perfect. This yeah. is These are situations that are real-life situations that are messed up. 
and it reflected reality for me. It reflected yeah. how life right. actually is now maybe, you know, two, three thousand years removed, et cetera, from, but, but the grittiness and the, you know, the, the basic core issue of dysfunction between human beings is kind of timeless. And that was part of why I was never, you know, I, I, I read the Quran and, you know, and all this kind of stuff at, during that time period of my life. My, my problem with uh, the Quran was they sanitized the characters. They were so righteous and perfect and all of this. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't identify with that. I don't click with that. That yeah. doesn't, that's not to me a story that is, oh, I can identify to some degree with, with Abraham because he was so righteous and perfect and whatever. And it's like, well, I'm never going to be that. And yep. I can't be that. Whereas the, the, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible version of Abraham's story is kind of a hit and miss on, yeah, he does some good things. He does some very faithful things, but he also does some not so faithful things yeah. and some kind of questionable, um, you know, here, take my wife, Pharaoh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it was, Oops. yeah, I mean, there's, there's those parts of the story that you're like, um, Abraham, <laughs> I think I, I'm, I'm gonna, I got some you questions. You have some explaining to do. Yeah, I got some questions, and we won't even get into the Hagar stuff, um, but anyway, that was for me the, the truth of scripture, and what drew me into really truly believing that it was true was yeah. because I could relate to it yeah. and I could say I can see this I this is these are real people this these are real stories whether they were like literal real stories or whatever but it's like these are this is this is true this is how this happens this is how people function this is how people operate yeah. and how they work and that, to me, says, okay, and yet we have a God that somehow is still willing and, <laughs> and able to work in the midst of that, in, in the midst of a Pharaoh saying, I'm going to throw all the male children into the river, and God is going, you know what, I'm going to get involved in this, and I'm going to be part of this horrible thing to make something good come out of it. Yeah, and it's... Um it's not like there are a ton of people in Scripture that give you that exact sanitized example. And I, I, I agree with you. I find it refreshing. I find it refreshing. And I also find it convicted in a sense that I can't... It, it wipes away our ability to make excuses that we're not qualified. Yeah, uh, well, well, I can't do that. Um, I'm sorry, but what did... Tell me about Paul again. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not worthy. Paul was literally killing Christians. Like that was his hobby. Yeah. Like that was his thing. And that's the guy that built the church. And your excuse is what? Oh, you were divorced. Oh, you drank a lot in college. Oh, you swear a lot. You know, all, the, all those things. Like, oh, oh, you're a woman. Right. All those things that we kind of make excuses for you know, why we can't do something, or I'm old, or, oh, I'm too young, or, you know, whatever. Um, if you really look at Scripture, you know those excuses are silly. Yep. Like, there's really, really old people in Scripture that, that get things done. There's women that get things done. There's kids that get things done. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's drunks that got things done. Like, God will literally use... Yeah. I always love the contrast between, like, say, Jeremiah versus um, Moses. You know, Moses did not have his calling until he was 40-some years old. Yeah. Um, he didn't realize that that was what he was there for. He didn't really know much about God, et cetera. He knew it was of his people, you know, and, and, but until his actual encounter didn't. And, and versus a Jeremiah or even a first, you know, uh, a Samuel, um, who, from the time they were children, knew what their calling was. And I always kind of equate that with, with, with the two different groups that you have in seminary. <laughs> you have the group that is known forever. They're going to go on and be a pastor. 
And then they have the you and me kind of people who we've gone off and we've done a bunch of other things. And then suddenly there's this, oh, I'm being called to go and do this. And where did that come from? And that's really, really weird. And I'm not sure that that's, and, and it's not that one is somehow better or worse than the other. It's just we, different. It's different and we bring yep. different skill sets to yep. it. Yeah, I, I had one of my uh, CPE classmates um, CPE clinical chaplaincy clinical clinical pastoral education. That's what it is. It's basically chaplaincy work. Mm -hmm. So one of my classmates in seminary, we did our CPE at the same hospital. He was a what we call a pipeliner. So right out of college into seminary, knew we wanted to be a knew we wanted to be a so pastor. We've taken all the Greek and everything beforehand. Right. Um, so one of those people. I don't yeah. Those people. <laughs> um, and then there's me, who that was not my path. And when we got to CPE, so, so he probably academically, that first year of seminary was way more comfortable than I was. When we got to CPE, the script was, the, the, was flipped. Because for me, it was, I was, I was working in a, in a level one trauma center in a behavioral health unit. And... So when people would come to me about depression and drinking and been there, done that issues with their wa <laughs> issues with their with their partner and those types of things, I'm like I can relate to that. And I remember driving home. We had about an hour drive. I remember driving home one day, and and my classmate was was talking about how much he was struggling because he was talking to some guy who was I don't remember what the story was, but it was like, it was like a life crisis. And he's like, my life experience is working at church camp and delivering pizzas for Domino's to get through college. Like, I can't relate to this guy with a, with what, with a wife and a kid. And like, I just, yeah. I can't relate to that. And, you know, so we, you know, that drive home, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, we're all gifted differently and we all have different life experiences and we bring them to them. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a pastor. It doesn't mean you can't be a pastor. It doesn't mean you can't be a good pastor. Because I'm sure he was very in tune with what college students go through. He was, yeah, absolutely, and and he and he's very. Um, once he could get out of his own way, and stop worrying about whether or not he had that life experience, and just was that presence Didn't and able better. to listen. Because really, part of chaplaincy is not giving advice, right? It's just to listen. I mean, it's one of the one of the lessons we you learn in chaplaincy is. Um, you're not saying, well, you know, Rebecca, you really shouldn't have had those five glasses of wine and got in the car. Then you wouldn't have had this car accident. You wouldn't have had the DUI. You wouldn't be in the hospital. Like, that's really not what it is. It's ministry of presence. It's being present and listening and, and praying with people. I mean, that's, that's really what we're talking about. And I said, so, so while those life experiences you don't have, you have that other thing. Now, I can say, you know what? I've been there I, to some degree. You know, I, I can relate. You know, I had someone that requested to see a chaplain, and I went, and they said, I don't, I don't know, I've changed my mind, I don't want to talk to you. I'm like, okay, no problem. I'm here, I'll be, on the, I'll be on the unit. If you need me, want to talk, flag me down. We did a group session, we did a group session every afternoon, we did a group session that day in the afternoon, and we did a lot of things with photographs. I mean, what does this photograph mean to me? And I don't remember what the picture was, but I said, you know, this reminds me of, of you know, my divorce. And, you know, it was a dark time and blah, 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 blah. So as soon as that group session was over, he was kind of, I was having another conversation and this gentleman was lingering behind me. He said, can we talk for a second? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So you've been divorced? I said, yep. Does it get better? I said, well, let's talk about what's going on. And, you know, so basically his, his wife had decided that she was filing for divorce and he tried, he tried to take his own life. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a conversation, and you know, I said, "Hey, you know what? I can't, I can't tell you it's better or worse. It's just a thing. Like everybody's situations differently, but, but just knowing that someone else had been had gone through it, yeah, um, was helpful. But you know, just to be able to sit and listen is, I mean, that's really the, that ministry of presence is is critically important. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I had to, I had to laugh at one of my classmates who was a pipeliner. And we were getting ready to do our CPE, our clinical pastoral education. And 
you know, at seminary, they try to kind of tell you a little bit about what it was about before you actually got into it. And one of my pipeliner classmates was sitting there, and he goes, you, you, you mean we're, we're going to have to deal with people who are dying? Yep. And my best friend from seminary at the time, who actually, up until she came to seminary, had been doing hospice work. <laughs> Good. She, she, her eyes just got huge when he said that, and she's like, where have you been? Like, how do you not know that's not part of the job? Yeah. How do you not know that just being a pastor in general, you're going to be dealing with, with, with dying people? Yeah. Um, and, and so there's that reality, um, I think, for some where they go into it thinking, oh, well, of course I love God and blah, 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 and I'm, I'm here to learn about God, and I'm here to do all the God things, and not realizing sometimes the God things are really messy and painful and, yeah. and hard and um, take us down some of those dark, yeah. those dark places. And Scripture is hard at places, and yep. Scripture is dark at places, and Scripture is challenging at places. It doesn't, it doesn't take away the fact that, you know, it doesn't take away God's presence. It doesn't take away from the salvation piece and the forgiveness piece and the grace and the mercy and all those things we like to talk about. But there's also there's also mess along the way, yeah. um, and it's not always easy. And well, our time is uh, kind of up here, so we will wrap it up next week. We'll um, <laughs> we'll be all kinds of fun and happy with Job. So <laughs> if you thought throwing kids in the Nile was was harsh, now we get to to talk about uh, Job trying to figure out why. Uh, bad things are happening to him. And um, next week, we'll talk about drowning puppies. <laughs> yeah, kind of, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. yeah Job, Job's, Job's a, I love the book of Job because it is challenging, but it also... Um, well, as I'm going to say in my sermon, Job is a country western song. Yeah. It's, you know... He I can't wait. Everything. I can't wait to sing it. Yep. So we will see you, I guess not literally as far as the podcast goes. Hopefully we'll see you um, on uh, Sunday for, for worship or Saturday evening. Or on Or live you can stream. watch yep. us online. Uh, otherwise, uh, we will be back here again next week talking about Job. See, see ya. Talk to you then. See ya. <laughs> we just can't get over the or see ya part. <laughs> hear ya or listen to ya or... Yeah, whatever. We'll catch you next week. Next week. Bye-bye. Bye.